Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think most of us would agree that at the end of our journey, if we're conscious and able to reflect upon it, we'll be asking questions like, was I really here? Did I show up? as myself. Did my life matter in terms that make sense to me now? Because if the world says, well, it's all about making money or impressing people in this way or that way or taking care of this problem or that problem. Well, let's say you've done all that, but is that really what your life is about? Hi, I'm Sarah Wilson and this is Wild, a podcast about living a more beautiful and fired up life. Here we will continue my 10-year nomadic journey living out of one bag in search of more connection, more awakeness, less consuming, less loneliness and less bloody scrolling. I'll be inviting you to join me in finding better ways to radically love and save our one wild and precious life on this planet. In this episode, I speak with James Hollis. Yes, I'm James Hollis. I'm an author and a uh, psychoanalyst. James Hollis is one of the most respected Jungian analysts and teachers in the world. He's published 16 books about, well, what matters most. And he has a stack of fans worldwide who dig his none of this rainbows and unicorns business messaging. Oliver Berkman, one of my favourite pop cultural commentators, once described James as a total downer. I mean, the titles and subtitles of his books kind of speak for themselves, like Swamplands of the Soul, New Life in Dismal Places, From Misery to Meaning in Midlife, Understanding Our Darker Selves. You get the drift. Me, I kind of love it, and it's rather fitting for our times, don't you reckon? As many of you listening might know, I'm not a fan of the rainbows and unicorn style of self-helping. I prefer my help served realistically and in service of our struggling planet. James and I first met when I interviewed him for this one wild and precious life, and he introduced me to what I would say is the most gentlest of wisdoms, one that helped me during a very dark time when I'd almost lost my hope that we could make it, which is a problem when the subtitle of your own book is a hopeful path forward. Anyway, his wisdom or wild idea, which we'll get to pretty quickly in the chat, is one that has enabled me to keep believing in the wildness of my own life. And I reconnect with him here to refine it for where we find ourselves today. And uh, we all have to ask ourselves a very fundamental question. Why am I here? 
James is 80 now and he spoke to me from Washington, D.C., where he was going through chemo. Now, you might hear hospital noises in the background. So you'll, you'll just have to explain that this is real life and somebody's, you know, working on the building. So it's, sorry about that. Okay, done. James, I've really got to ask the question because we've spoken before and you made time for me back then in similar circumstances. And I really have to ask because I know you've recently turned 80. Mm-hmm. You have been working for many, many years. You see patients to this day. You've just put out a book, yet another book. What makes you do it? What makes you get up at 5.15 in the morning to do this? Well, certainly it's appropriate. I want to mention that my prognosis is very good, so I'm optimistic about coming out on the other side of this. But uh, I think we all tend to do what we really need to do when we need to do it. And we also tend to do what we need to do when we want to do it. So both of those uh, come together. And, um, you know, I I have a full-time practice in in, uh, Jungian analysis and uh, when I write, it's all at the, in the evenings at the end of a long workday. So I'm, I'm used to working for, for some uh, number of hours each day. Uh, well, I admire you greatly. And I think that's actually quite a good segue to, to what I am calling you from the other side of the world to talk about. In this podcast, I take one wild idea that has had a big impact on me. And I ring the person who developed that idea, who prompted that idea in my mind um, to talk it further. And Look, I'll give a little bit of context if I can. Um, For me, the past year saw me stripped back massively, as it has done for many, many people around the world. It left me in a place where I wasn't sure what was going to take the place of what used to be there before. It's almost like I felt dangerously adrift in this free fall with no compass, no idea of what I was going to grasp onto as the point of my existence going forward. And I read your book, uh, An Examined Life, and came across the idea that we have spoken about before, and that is it's an incredible guiding principle that actually enabled me to move forward with my life about a year ago, and that is this very wild idea that our souls are calling us to an appointment with life. And I'd love you just to explain to listeners what you mean by that. Well, when we use the word soul, it's literally the translation of the Greek word psyche. So it's who we are at our deepest level. And uh, we all have to ask ourselves a very fundamental question. Why am I here? And in service to what? You know, the world has tons of responses to a question like that. They tell us what to do all the time. But sooner or later, you know, one could say, you know, in the first half of life, you're really sort of meeting the responses of the world and demands of the world, whether it's parents or employer or whomever. But there comes a point in one's life when you have to say, but who am I apart from my history? Who am I apart from my work? Who am I apart from the social life that I've assembled around me? And that's when life gets really interesting. It's in moments like that that you begin to realize that we arrive in mystery and we depart in mystery and we better figure out why we're here, at least while we're here. So I I think we all have an appointment with our own souls. And now one of the, ironically, one of the ways in which we know that is when we are doing all the right things as defined by our conscious understanding of such matters, or when we're following our instructions faithfully in life, and inwardly it never feels right, 
or we're assailed by symptoms of one kind or another. In my work, rather than say, how quickly do we get rid of those symptoms, we would rather ask the question, why have they come? In service to what? What are they asking of me? And that's the last question that the ego consciousness wants to ask because it prefers simply for them to disappear. But then we have to say, all right, if I'm doing the right things, why is my psyche withdrawn its approval and is presented me with such terrible dreams? Or, or why am I depressed? Or why am I self-medicating too much these days? What is it that I'm trying to treat here? What kind of internal conflict or discrepancy? And, and that's partly how the psyche gets a hold of us and says, you know, <laughs> you, you better pay attention to something that really matters for you, because if you don't, you'll, you'll be spending your life paying attention and serving the things that really don't matter. It's quite a comforting phrase. And when you first said it to me, I did find it comforting. I, it suddenly, I suddenly was able to put some of that pain and those struggles I've been feeling into some context. Right. This is my psyche telling me I'm not on the right track and I better do something about it. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I also felt that it was almost like a call to action. It was, it was almost asking me to lift, to go, right, life is calling me and I'm being called to be of better service and to lift. And I think for many of us, I think we're feeling that at the moment. We're feeling that the general sort of calling of maybe attending to family, our work and so on is not quite quite enough. I think we're being asked to lift further. And I know that you explore some of these themes in your latest book, Living Between Worlds. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Is this, is, a, is this a calling that we're feeling that's taking us out further than our own personal struggles? Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, you alluded to many of the difficulties our world has gone through in the past year and so, including the recognition of how much our sense of self and sense of value depended on our outer connections with friends, family, work assignments, the office, whatever whatever form it is, is what I call the plug-ins. Well, what if the plug-ins are then pulled out and at the end of those cords, so to speak, are, are what? Anxieties by and large. And it's caused a lot of people to have to sort of fall back upon themselves and, and look at themselves in a, in a new way. And many people have profited from that, and many people didn't like the person they met on those occasions. You know, it's ironic that way back in the 17th century, the French mathematician and uh, mystic and uh, philosopher and inventor Blaise Pascal said once, humankind's greatest difficulty is tolerating being alone by itself in its private chamber for at least 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Now, that's in the 17th century. And he noted that even the court had to invent the jester, lest people reflect upon the self and grow miserable indeed. That's right. And so what we have in our popular culture is a series of distractions that allow us to become separated from ourselves. And, and that's why so many people find the experience of meeting themselves and, and, and asking themselves, what is my life really about and what's driving me here and so forth? And that's, that's a very liberating question, and I think a challenging question, and ultimately a rewarding one, but its initial experience is a very confrontational one, a very threatening one. And I, I sort of describe it, I mean, that discomfort 
there's this, I think you used the word, it's a disorientation. The markers that used to guide us sort of throughout our days and our years have either become redundant mm-hmm. or we've found them to be lacking because they don't satisfy us anymore. And so so life is taking us to a different kind of appointment. That can feel like, and I use the word, James, it feels kamikaze-like. It feels like I've been thrust into a space, like a vacuum, a free-fall vacuum with nothing mm-hmm. to hold on to. And I suppose it's that classic notion of the unknowingness, the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And coupled by this idea that there's a deadline. Our mortality is being felt probably more so today than it has been for quite some time. How can we rise to that though? Because it is so terrifying and disorientating. And I see it, and I'm sure you do too, people sometimes when faced with that for the first time perhaps, and I think in the last 12 months we've seen that, they can then just collapse in a heap and want to go and bury themselves in a cocoon of distraction and avoidance. Mm-hmm. How can we show up to our appointment, I suppose, is the real question. Well, I think the one word that keeps showing up for me in questions like that is the word accountability. Mm-hmm. I think most of us would agree that at the end of our journey, if we're conscious and able to reflect upon it, we'll be asking questions like, was I really here? Did I show up as myself? Um, did my life matter in terms that makes sense to me now? Because if the world says, well, it's all about making money or impressing people in this way or that way or taking care of this problem or that problem. Well, let's say you've done all that, but is that really what your life is about? And, you know, that's a disconcerting question. The human ego does not enjoy ambiguity. It doesn't enjoy ambivalence. Uh, and therefore, we will quickly grasp on, you know, simplistic solutions or those thousand, thousand distractions to which I just referenced. But I think in the long run, um, we need to be haunted in a constructive way by Jung's question, what supports us when nothing supports us? Yeah. And, and that's the key, because uh, you're right, there's a, there can be a, a sense of a free fall if, if your normal way of operating uh, is not there for some reason. And this can happen for all sorts of reasons when people have been so work identified and then they're fired or downsized or have to retire or an illness comes and removes us from the world that we we knew. A global pandemic that makes our um, four-wheel mm-hmm. drive sitting out there in the driveway look suddenly very, very redundant <laughs> and pointless. That, that's right. That's mm. right. Yeah. And, and it's at that point then then you really have to ask yourself, what is it that um, supports me that, that in some way rises to carry me through these difficult times? Now, one of the points I made in that book is why should we think that we are not equipped by nature with the inherent resilience of nature to come through difficulties? Our life, difficult as it sometimes is, is actually infinitely easier than that of our ancestors. In fact, the farther back we go, we realize how perilous daily life was for everybody. So we we have to realize we have within us uh, tenacity, uh, courage, uh, persistence, endurance. And and we don't necessarily know it until life asks it of us. And then you realize that it's there. 
and and nature has given it to me and i and i can in time trust that yeah i i i love that you say that because i think that I sort of get this sense, and it's going to sound a little bit woo-woo, um, but I'm sure you'll be able to explain it in psychological terms. What I'm trying to get to in some ways is I feel that life is almost becoming patient. It's sitting there waiting for us to show up to the appointment, and we've been reluctant to do so. Why is it now? Why is it now that that we're feeling that call to the appointment more so than we previously had? Well, first of all, in the terms you've just mentioned, um, the pandemic has played a role in that because I think it's the first time since World War II for most countries, certainly for the United States, and I imagine for uh, Australia as well, um, it's, it's something that reaches into every house. We hear about all kinds of national and international events, but it's always out there, over there, happening to someone else. This reaches into everyone's home. It's invisible, therefore it invites our projections of all kinds. And it literally threatens our lives. And therefore, it's, it's become incumbent upon people to ask certain kinds of questions. And it's interesting to me how immature so many people have been in saying, well, I just want my life to continue the way it has been. I'm going to ignore you know, very rational medical prescriptions for, for reducing and controlling the pandemic. But I want what I want when I want it. Because... You know, the great sort of religions of the modern world uh, are materialism, the fantasy that by buying things, it'll fill the emptiness within me. Hedonism, it's all about having a good time. And narcissism, it's all about me. Yes. Well, as long as I'm operating, you know, with those premises, and they're central to most of the, you know, Western and large parts of the Eastern world, um, it's, it's going to lead to forms of self-estrangement which is why so many people, as we mentioned before, are thrown back upon themselves, in some cases for the first time. And again, it can happen other times when you have a sudden divorce or a sudden death in the family, or you, you lost the position that you were counting on. Uh, moments where we realize that our provisional sense of identity was only that, it wasn't the real thing. It's, it's, it's a set of structures, it's a set of assumptions, it's marching orders, if you will. But underneath that uh, is, is the central mystery of each one of us. Why are you here? Now, I think that's a question that ultimately can only be addressed by the individual. James, I know that when you've described, and we might backtrack just a little, that when our souls are calling us to the appointment, if we don't show up to that appointment, if we block it and avoid it and descend into our narcissism mm-hmm. and avoidance mm-hmm. strategies and distraction strategies it will just get louder and the taps on the shoulder will become a shove and then it'll maybe emerge from a few little symptoms to perhaps an illness, a calamity of some sort, until we pay attention and show up. And Uh I know that to be real in my viscera. When we take it out to the global level, and as you say, with a pandemic, we've been almost universally or globally called to the same appointment. That's how I'm seeing things. Is that what's happening? I mean, we've had the tap on the shoulder. Now, if we ignore it and we continue with our narcissistic Mm -hmm. ways and say, I don't want to turn up to this appointment, thank you very much, Mm -hmm. what then happens? Mm -hmm. How is this going to play out? Well, you know, Jung put it this way. He said, as as therapists, we should always ask our, our patients the question, what has their neurosis, which would say their sort of compromise strategy, 
uh, allowed them to avoid in their life. Mm-hmm. Because what we avoid doesn't go away. It's it's going to show up somewhere else. And if it keeps getting repressed or neglected or projected off or anesthetized, you know, it will pathologize in the forms in which you you mentioned. Um, Jung said once in another one of those sentences so haunting. He said, the greatest burden the child must bear is the unlived life of the parent. So it's whatever I am, you know, unable to face in my life or where I'm stuck becomes not only the conscious model, but it becomes a very subtle influence. And it says to those who follow me, well, you either should model yourself after this and imitate it, and therefore you repeat it from generation to generation, the same stuckness, or spend your life trying to compensate for it, in which case you're living reactively to someone else's unfinished business and not living your own journey. So, you know, what we avoid continues and persists and uh, always is the question, what, what is my strategy helping me avoid? Most people have some intuitive sense of what they really want to do with their life, what they need to do with their life. I've had people come in and say after a long, long time in therapy, well, I, I sort of knew the first day I walked in what I needed to do about my marriage, let's say, yeah. or what I that I had to face the the deadness of my career and I had to make this big leap but it took me a long time to gather the strength and insight to do that well that's fine okay that's at least at least one is keeping the appointment um, and many other times you see individuals simply find a way to perpetuate that uh, evasive life you know it's it's one thing to have fears it's something else to lead a fearful life you see And a fearful life is one in which our defenses, in so many ways, um, constitute a shadow government. Our defenses become our our way of avoiding showing up. So we always have to start with questions that are very unpleasant, like, what am I afraid of here? You know, ask it quite literally. What am I afraid of? Now, here's the pragmatic response to that. All right. What does that make you do? And what does that keep you from doing? In other words, if, if fear is something that's at the center of my strategies, whether I recognize it or not, what does it make me do with my life? Or what is it preventing me from doing? And then the moment you start asking that question, and most people, most people can answer those questions, ironically. And if they can't answer those questions, why haven't they been asking them? That's the question. So if we were to look at sort of the global pandemic or we could even take the climate crisis, what is it that we're avoiding there? Because I do think that there are people who are feeling the call to that appointment and perhaps it might be, let's just take an example, I need to get real about the way that I consume resources. What is happening there? Why are we avoiding it? And this is something that I see everywhere. People, they know the issue. They're getting the taps on the shoulder. They're seeing what's happening around them. They're worried about their children. And that's a very deep existential fear. And yet they're not attending to that appointment as they'd like to. How are you seeing that play out? Just to give that as an example, or work through that as an example with us. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, first of all, for all of our powers of communication, we're using one of them today to cross thousands and thousands of miles to be present to each other. We've also become atomized in a way. 
that is to say, we're not part of a community. We're, we're a bunch of separate independent individuals. And I think there's been a, an erosion of the idea of, of community because I need to know that everything I do is affecting someone else, just as I'm affected by them. And underneath all of that is the question, do I belong to, you know, the people on this planet? Do I in some way have a communal obligation? And if I do, then I, I don't have to feel duty bound to, you know, cut back my own, you know, consumption of natural resources. I feel it's the most natural thing to do because I'm participating in that sense of community. You know, a society is a group of people that are organized around various purposes like transportation or communication or whatever. And whenever those purposes are satisfied, the society can dissolve. It's not, it's not cohesive. Community, though, has some sense of a vertical dimension in them. Societies are horizontal. Communities have a vertical dimension. So each of us is lifted out of that psychological um, isolation into a participation of where we are one at some level. So what's happening in Australia is happening elsewhere. It touches things elsewhere. We, we now know that we can't live in splendid isolation. So you're right. The, um, as bad as the pandemic has been, the greater existential threat to us is global warming. And there are many special interests around the world, as you know, that are still trying to deny it. But sooner or later, those chickens come home to roost. And when they do, it's not going to be pretty. And, and we're already beginning to count the costs. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So the soul, you know, does those taps on the shoulder um, and says, hey, there's a fear going on here and you need to attend to it. Turn up to life, meet it. And we're going to work through this. And then we ignore it. We keep spending. We keep going about our ways. We don't sign the petitions against fracking coal and so on. And we keep going. And then the tap on the shoulder gets louder. The it becomes a prod. How are you seeing this play out for your patients at the moment as they try to grapple with this incredible existential fear? Just so that people listening might be able to identify what is going on for them and frame it through this sort of wild idea that our souls are calling us to an appointment with life? Mm -hmm. Well, interestingly enough, what um, so many of my clients 
have been reflecting upon in this past year is, um, you know, the, the loss of the assumptions they once had. The fact that, you know, you could casually assume the um, health of your nation, uh, that modern scientific methods would be enough to, to squelch these things before they particularly touched us and came into our homes and so forth. Most of us now know at least one person who has died as a result of this uh, pandemic. And um, we, we now know more about the limitations. And we now know about the necessity of certain kinds of steps we have to take. And at the same time, you know, most of my clients, I think, having a sense of that, also have um, felt a deep, deep depression at some level, because the uh, depression, again, is the auto autonomous withdrawal of energy that usually is going out there in service to all of the distractions of our lives. So again, unhook that energy from its external loci and, and what happens to it, it, in, it internalizes, it, it regresses and falls back upon them. Now, when that energy comes back to us, then, then you could say, this is your energy. It's come back to you in a new way. What are you gonna do with it? And it's certainly true that many people have used their ingenuity or they've seen this as an opportunity to pursue long interests that they felt they never had time for. For example, I know this is particularly true in, in the United States. People who are used to long commutes, waiting in traffic, are not having to do that anymore. They suddenly realize, well, every day I have an extra two hours. And with that, I was able to do this or do that. And, and that's, in a certain way, your life has come back to you. What are you going to do with it? You know, we have to ask ourselves this basic question. What would you do with your life if it was really your life and not someone else's? What if you're not here forever, but it's a finite period, a short pause between two great mysteries, as Jung called it? Uh, what if you're accountable for your life, okay? Now, all of those things are true. And it's dawned on some people that those are the kinds of existential dilemmas that we always live in. There was a terrible sentence in um, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning that I remember reading many decades ago where he said, as horrible as Auschwitz was, it was a metaphor for daily life. Exaggerated, yes, but a metaphor for daily life yep. in which people had to make important choices every day, life and death choices. And they, they had to, in some way, decide what their values were and whether they were going to live with those values or not. And so with that comes an extraordinary dignity, freedom, and challenge, of course. And I think a lot of folks have, um, have been invited to that kind of conversation. What are my values? Am I living them? And if I'm not going to be doing it now, when am I going to do it? So if I'm reading this right, are you saying that some of the, the things that have bounced back to us um, during the pandemic are almost like the metaphor for the broader issue in our daily life of the climate crisis? That you know, it, it, it's the soul giving us one uh, extra prod. The pandemic is another prod that basically is forcing us to get real, to turn up to the appointment with the broader existential crisis. Is, have I got that right, James? Uh, yes, absolutely. Now, you know, okay. we're all creatures of fate. You know, we didn't get to choose our parents, our genetics, where we were born in the world, et cetera. 
But there's also something called destiny, that which is seeking its expression in the world through us. And the human ego is sort of poised right between them. And I think the person's, um, the meaning of a person's life is the degree to which we can help sort of serve our destiny or, or be facilitating it in some way in the face of the obstacles that fate has presented us. You know, we don't get to choose our family of origin or the time in history. But then the question is, to what degree did you become who you are in service to what matters really to you in these circumstances? And therein, you see, is the ultimate life challenge. Yes, absolutely. Um, to bring it down to sort of, I guess, tangibles for what's going on for people, um, there's a great deal of discomfort. There is incredible amounts of discomfort. There's annoyances. There's sort of a an, an itch that we're feeling at the moment. And mm-hmm. um, I, I kind of, you know, I feel that these are the things that we need to start to identify. What are some other things that are signs that we are being called to our appointment? I know you've mentioned dreams, for instance, mm-hmm. but what mm-hmm. else tangibly that you see amongst your patients are becoming louder and bigger and more real that people can identify in themselves? Well, first of all, we have elemental systems to help us steer our path. We knew it as children, but because of the necessity of adaptation to the world around us, we have to trade it away to fit in and and meet what's asked of us. So yes, we have an energy system. And if we're doing what is right for us, you know that energy is there. It supports you. Um, and if, if, it's, if you're putting it in the wrong places, it leads to burnout and exhaustion. We have the feeling function. You and I don't choose feelings. Feelings are autonomous, qualitative analyses by your psyche as to how things are going from its perspective. So you could, again, be doing all the right things as you see it or your culture sees it. And inwardly, the feeling is never there that supports that. And, and so one has to pay attention to that qualitative analysis. Thirdly, we do have dreams. Um, we Sleep research has told us that we average six dreams per night. Nature does not waste energy. It's obviously commenting on things that are going on from, from the perspective of the soul and not just the ego position. I know most people say, well, I don't dream that much or I never remember my dream. Well, the truth is you are. And if you reach my age, which is 80, as we mentioned, you will have spent six full years of that time in a dream state, which is extraordinary when you think about it. And what are you saying dreams are doing if we're having them so prolifically? I think partly they are responding to the magnitude of stimuli that we receive in the course of any 24 hours. That's why nature needs to take us out of the action, so to speak, to go to sleep, to repair, to restore, and to process and to metabolize. And that's part of it. And that's why even if we never remembered our dreams, dreams are serving, you know, a part of the sort of self-care system of the human soul. So if we're having more dreams at the moment and they're louder and more vibrant, is that another sign that our souls are calling us somewhere? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Sure. Sure. And and even those 3 a.m. thoughts, what I call the hour of the wolf, when you oh, wake yeah. up and you're completely, completely alone. And you're thinking, holy cow, how did I get to this point in my life? Yep. You know, And those are those moments where your own soul is showing up minus the distractions because 
it tends to get uh, lost in the shuffle of daily uh, stimuli. I have lost a lot of sleep, um, in part as I grapple with the climate crisis, what's happening around me with the pandemic, and just absorbing all of that information. And I, my sleep has really suffered. However, I haven't been fretting about it because I've put it through that lens. I've realised that this is my psyche processing really important stuff. And so I'll often mm-hmm. wake up and go, that was necessary. I needed to go through that and crunch and struggle and wrestle with some thoughts and so that I could emerge into my day and perhaps have a new approach and perhaps step up to what life was asking of me. And I think that's a really good example, those 3 a.m. thoughts. I know so many people are having them. Mm -hmm. Are there other signals that are difficult and we're seen as pain, but we could reframe as wonderful reminders that we're paying attention to? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the most important of all of those indications about whether we're tracking correctly with our, uh, with our choices is, is really the most difficult to define, and that's meaning. Meaning is subjective. If a person has a genuine sense of purpose, and they're not just driven by external or internal pressures, then all kinds of struggle and conflict, even suffering, is redemptive, it's powerful, it's, it, it serves a purpose. Most of the people that you and I would admire in history are people who didn't have comfortable lives, who suffered a great deal, but we admire them because they held to what really mattered to them. And as a result of which, their, their lives are meaningful, not only to them, but to the rest of us as well. So of all the things, the most elusive and yet the most important of all is that question of meaning. You know, we don't create it. It's something that we experience as a natural response to being in right relationship to our souls at any given moment. That's the point. You can't engineer that. That's right. And I think we live in a culture, and I know you've written about this, we live in a culture where we're told um, to go and have a meaningful life. We tell our children, go forth and have a meaningful career. And yet we don't have discourse around it. We don't have philosophers and religious leaders who discuss it with us. And at the same time, the various discomforts, right, that generally are signals that we are wrestling with the meaning of our lives, for instance, having to delay mm-hmm. gratification, having to be of service and sacrifice something, they have been kind of cocooned over. We are prevented from even going into struggle or pain because we have this sort of dialogue that we shouldn't. And that's what I find so radical and wild and yet so comforting about that notion. Our souls are calling us to an appointment with life. The struggle and Mm -hmm. the pain Mm -hmm. of those taps on the shoulder that our souls or our psyches are giving us are meaningful. That is that is the juncture, that is the, the, the point at which meaning is being laid out for us. And yet we shut down the struggle. We try to numb it and avoid it and run from it. And I think this is the most wonderful thing is that when we start to see struggle as our psyche steering us to the meaning, steering us to our congruence with life, our belonging with life, where we have a meaningful relationship with it. That is so important, isn't it? This understanding that struggle and pain is a steering towards meaning. Sure, sure. The ego naturally would love to avoid conflict and and struggle and suffering, of of course. 
And at the same time, um, you really have to ask the question, what is worth in my life that kind of struggle, maybe even that kind of suffering? Because if you don't ask that kind of question, you're, you're living in some way a trivialization of this journey. One way of putting that is our life is always in service, whether we know it or not. It's, it's in service, first of all, to the powers around us when, when we're young and children are necessarily debt dependent and vulnerable. It's later uh, we're in service to the assumptions of our culture that by and large we tend to internalize and serve. And then whenever the protests come from the autonomy of that psyche, we're called to another kind of service. And you, you really have to ask the question, what is worthy of your service? And uh, for me, for example, the one thread that I can point to that has always been there for me mm -hmm. since childhood was teaching. I've always felt a calling to teaching. And I've done it in various venues from literal teaching. I'm still teaching in classes and so forth, but writing and therapy and, and lectures and so forth. Um, because and why I think I have an inherent curiosity about things and an inherent uh, desire to share that with people. Um, there are times there would have been far more lucrative pathways or far more sort of conventional pathways. Um, and, and yet I always felt this is worth sacrificing for. And James, along the way, when you maybe veered from that pathway, you maybe have were lured by more money somewhere throughout your 80 years. Um, did you find that you were sort of smacked back onto course? You know, your soul felt some discomfort and you were veered back towards the teaching pathways. Is, is that what happened for you? Sure, of course. I, I think there's a part of us always that knows what is right for us and at some level knows what our calling is. Now, I'm sure some of your listeners are saying, I haven't a clue. Well, okay, that's an honest response. And many times people come into therapy with that kind of openness to say, I don't really know. But you have to keep asking the question until your own psyche begins to reveal itself to you. Yeah. And then you realize that this is about vocation. You know, we know what jobs are, but vocation, vocatus, vocal, to be called. What are you called to do with who you are? and this short, precious life that we have? And, and that's a healthy question because the answer is going to vary depending on where you are in the journey. And I think the comforting thing that I keep coming back to, and this is certainly my experience, is I mentioned at the outset that I had found myself stripped of so much in the last year, but really the last three years. And I know that it was very much my psyche steering me to my vocation. And I really only found it in the last couple of years. And that was to attend to helping people feel comfortable about waking up to the climate crisis. And anything mm -hmm. that got in the way of that suddenly collapsed, fell through, imploded, caused me so much irritation that I had to walk away from it. And it has refined and refined. And that's why your thoughts and this phrase has helped me so much. It has provided me with a peaceful knowing and sort of connected understanding of what's going on so that I could understand the pain and the loss and the grief that was going on. But then mm -hmm. it actually made me rise even further to that calling because I actually saw it as a call to arms. I actually saw mm -hmm. it as something that was going to drive me as well as provide comfort. 
I'll ask you a question that speaks to another topic that you explore and have explored throughout your career, and that is the idea of masculinity as well. And masculinity I see Mm -hmm. as well struggling at the moment in terms of um, men getting a tap on the shoulder, in terms of men being called to an appointment with life. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you can discuss there that explains what I feel is a very real pain for a lot of men at the moment? What are you seeing in your practice and how are you framing it with men? Absolutely. And that's another huge subject. I've written a book on it, um, Under Saturn's Shadow, The Wounding and Healing of Men. I'm actually making a a short film uh, at the moment on that subject. That's right. Um, Men have lost their script, so to speak, or their script that they knew is no longer applicable to the world they live in. Um, and, And for many men, it leads them to a sense of confusion. If you can bear with me, I, I, this is the way I've put it, particularly in speaking to women's groups who want to know about those strange creatures called men. If you could imagine that your close friends, the ones with whom you share your personal worries, your concern, your, you talk about uh, your marriage or your children or your body or your fears, whatever, those people are cut out of your life forever. Those comp- topics are forbidden. Secondly, if you could imagine that your internal source of guidance, call it your instinct, your intuition, whatever you want to call it, that linkage is severed. And thirdly, that your worth as a human being will be predominantly uh, defined by meeting abstract standards of productivity as defined by strangers. Then you'll experience what is the typical condition of men. So this is what you say to women. You get them to imagine those three scenarios that your network of mm-hmm. friends, your access to your intuition, your ability to sort of understand what's happening mm-hmm. at a deeper level, and then also the fact that your sense of worth is defined by others. You're saying that that's the experience of being a man and you try to get women to understand that. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And you can see how that leads to, A, an enormous amount of psychological and spiritual isolation and, and, and most of all to self-estrangement. Because there's no, in, there has not been historically much invitation for men to have a relationship to their inner life. You're defined by your inner, your outer productivity, your your success, your your affluence, your power, or whatever form it takes. Well, all of that's been changing, and I've actually seen men change. And when I came back from my training in Zurich about over forty years ago, uh, I was seeing nine women to one man in my practice. Now it's eight men to uh, two women. And is that because that male psyche is calling them to something mm-hmm. more, to something else, to something better and bigger? Is, is that how you see things? Well, I think, first of all, more men are more lost than ever before. That's part yeah, of it. Yeah, right. But also, there's a greater permission now, I think, and, and understanding by many men that I have to look at this from an internal perspective here. I have to start a conversation with myself before I can improve my conversation with my friends, my partners, my children, and so forth. Because, you know, the paradox always is no relationship with anybody else out there is ever going to be more evolved than my relationship to to myself. And where I'm separated, stuck, self-estranged, unknowing, that's where it's, what's, what's going to define the quality of that relationship. But equally, when they feel stuck, and for men listening, if they're feeling stuck, if they're feeling 
um, that life is pushing back on them, they feel underappreciate, I suppose they're signs that their souls <laughs> are calling mm-hmm. them forward and that they need mm-hmm. to start listening to that and that that will guide them, that pain will guide them to where they need to be. Um, mm-hmm. Is that what you work with when you're talking to men? Absolutely. Uh, frankly, for, for most men, when that pain comes, and it always does, it often has driven them to self-medication, particularly drugs and alcohol, add or flight into an outer new outer relationship as a distraction, mm-hmm. or to, um, you know, f- frenetic work. And those are treatment plans to avoid that conversation with one's own soul. And the treatment plan becomes part of the problem in the long run. It doesn't, doesn't really work. And as you say, our souls don't give up. <laughs> They're not going anywhere and they'll keep coming back. And so those avoidant, distracted techniques um, mm-hmm. will fail because mm-hmm. your soul will go, all right, you tried that for a while. Now we're going to present you with a bigger and bigger problem until you turn up. Mm-hmm. That's a massive undertaking. Of course it is. But then if you don't do your work, it only gets worse, you know. I, I was deeply touched when I got a letter from somebody in the Australian outback of all places who mm-hmm. somehow had read that book under Saturn Shadow. I couldn't imagine how it got out there, but he wrote this very touching letter and he said, I always thought there was something wrong with me because I had these thoughts and feelings and I wasn't supposed to have them. And um, when I read what you've described here, I realized that other men feel this way. And this is, this is natural and normal. And I, I can't say enough how comforting it is that, that I, I'm not so terrible. I'm not so uh, strange after all. It was a very touching letter. And it was, there have been many like that, but that was one of the first ones I got. And, and um, I thought, you know, see, that's that tremendous isolation when you're separated from your own soul. Because then, then you're really not grounded in anything real. You're not really rooted in something that will support you when nothing else supports you. So, the world is speeding up. The existential crisis is real. We are feeling less able to find the thing that supports us when nothing is supporting us. Me, I'm personally scared a lot of the time and I find it hard to make sense of my reactions. And perhaps like you, I get bamboozled and caught up in all my hauntings, as James puts it. But this is what I've worked out for where I'm at with you right here in this moment. While I struggle to cope with the new normal and engage further in activism and caring deeper and wider, I've needed a guiding principle to get me through just at a day-to-day level. I'm still human. To know that my soul is calling me to an appointment with life, to know that our collective soul is calling all of us together to our appointment with life, provides this guiding principle for me. I don't know about you, but it makes everything sort of feel like it makes sense. I'm uncomfortable and despairing, and everything seems harder and harder because my soul is tapping me on the shoulder. And it will keep doing it until I do something, until I activate. So off the back of all of this, I'm wondering if I might ask you a few of the actionable questions that James poses in our chat. Where can you see this playing out? How is your soul or the collective soul tapping at you 
or maybe it's shoving you. What do you reckon it's calling you to? To change or to do? At a basic level, our souls are calling us to show up and meet life in its true, simple state. That is, in truth, to stop avoiding, to stop blocking, and join the reality of it all. I think it's really helpful to sit and think about what that might be for you. As James says, all of us know what our soul wants us to do, what we really want to do with our lives. If we stop to really pay attention, that's all it takes. The other question I invite you to ask then is, if like most of us, you've been ignoring the gentle taps on the shoulder or the shoves because perhaps you haven't recognised that it's simply your soul reminding you of where you need to be, how is it showing up elsewhere while you're ignoring it? Is it now showing up in bad relationships or tensions at work or in your dreams? Or perhaps you've been getting angry with people who are engaged in climate care, but more and more of these kinds of people are appearing in your life. I don't know, I've personally found it useful to see where all the reminders are steering me. Over and over, like doggedly. They steer me to what I really want to do with my life. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.